What's going on, world? You're tuned into the Words, Beats, and Life podcast with yours truly, Mazi Mutafa. I got a special guest here in the office who almost never comes to visit, but he's always putting in work. That would be Dennis. What's going on, Dennis? What's happening, man? So Dennis is the editor-in-chief of the Words, Beats, and Life journal. Uh, just got done putting out two issues, about to put out the third in one summer. Are you on your Jay-Z hustle? Like, you know, you got to put out three albums in one, one summer? It seems like it, man. I don't know what's going on. So, Dennis, for people that aren't necessarily familiar with your scholarship, why don't you talk a little bit about things you've published and where you've worked and all that good stuff. Let's set a context. Yeah, so um, I teach. Uh, I'm teaching at the University of Maryland right now. I also teach a course at Georgetown. Um, some of the work that I do is uh, in hip-hop, music, culture, scholarship, um, I'm working on a book right now that's making the connection between African-American literature and rap music. Um, so instead of me looking at rap specifically, not necessarily just hip-hop culture, but instead of me looking at rap as a kind of social, cultural phenomenon, I actually look at it as poetry, um, as you know, a subgenre in the African-American literary tradition. So I'm looking at um, how hip-hop music comes from a very long tradition of African-American writers. So I look at the slave narrative, we go into the Harlem Renaissance, we look at you know the um, Richard Wright School of Protest Literature. Um, I especially spend time in the 1960s looking at street literature. Um, and really kind of bringing marginalized writers into focus. So folks like uh, Robert Beck, better known as Iceberg Slim, Donald Goins, and putting them in conversation with folks like Richard Wright, uh, Ann Petrie, Toni Morrison. You know, I kind of want to get to a point when we're talking about Jay-Z and Nas and Rhapsody with the same kind of energy that we talk about, you know, Alice Walker, you know, Rita Dove. They should all be in that conversation. Why do you think that's important? Um, well, I mean, it all comes from that same tradition. You know, rappers aren't necessarily um, musicians in the same way as we think of like the Whitney Houston's and the Garth Brooks of the world. Um, their artistry is really in their ability to use the English language. Um, and that's what writers do. You know, a rapper is really only as good as his ability to master the English language. And he's a poet, right? He, he, he has to adhere to a certain set of rules, um, language rules, poetic devices in order to achieve his goal. Um, and that, that's paramount in the success of the rapper. So how does what you just said square with the music that's on the radio right now in terms of not following particular forms, not being guided by previous rap traditions, like, and not necessarily even being necessarily about language, but much more about um, the beats and about the flow than it is about, or in chants. So like, if you think about a group like the Migos, as an example, mm -hmm. who make amazing music, but I wouldn't necessarily, what literary tradition would they be a part of? Well, when I think when you think about the African-American literary tradition, mm -hmm. um, you have to think about the oral tradition. You have to think about, like you're talking about the chants and rap music. Well, mm -hmm. there's a lot of chants going on in the African-American oral tradition. The preacher, the call and response, you know, the uh, slave oh, no doubt. Uh, work songs. But all of that fits into 
for African-American writers in particular, it fits into that literary tradition. When you think of folks like Langston Hughes, um, when you think of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, they relied on a lot of those kind of oral traditions to inform their literary work. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, all rap is high art, you know what I mean? You know, just like there are tons of novels that come out year after year that absolutely suck. You no, but, but you actually answered my question in a way I wasn't expecting, which mm -hmm. is that in some ways they are part of an older, a non-written literary tradition, which also feeds into the fact that a lot of the rappers don't write, that they just go in the booth and then perform. So this idea of innovation and improvisation being key to what it is they're creating. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think that in many ways, yeah, the oral tradition... Um, is really important to the way MCs sort of craft their work, but that doesn't deny the written practice, you know? Certainly they're writing, a lot of them are writing their words down with the idea that it's meant to be heard. Um, it's funny that you talk about it that way because whenever uh, rap is discussed um, in, in the classroom, it's often paired with, you know, the oral tradition. We don't really see rap when you're looking at an anthology and kind of going through the table of contents, they typically put rap next to like Negro spirituals and work songs. Um, <laughs> got a little noise going on in the back. Yeah, but thanks, anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, but black folks have always, especially, you know, African-Americans, but black folks throughout, you know, the diaspora have always been kind of forced to change the rules a little bit, um, even if those rules, um, you know, are literary rules. Right. So we were talking, or I asked you to jump on this podcast while you were engaging in a conversation about Jay-Z and the NFL, right. but then tying it back to other artists like Spike Lee who are trying to promote activism through their art. I wonder what you think is happening kind of at this moment in hip-hop and popular culture around this idea of activism. Because I think that the, the blowback that Jay-Z got isn't necessarily from working with the NFA. It, it, it's really the statement that he made where he said, we're past kneeling. And there's still people kneeling. Mm -hmm. So he's like, we're, we're past the protest. Now let's come to the table. And, and, and people would say, well, if he just hadn't said that, I think he would have got half the blowback. Mostly because people are going to continue to protest. People are going to continue to stop watching. If he had said that part of the reason why I'm coming to the table is because the NFL doesn't pay artists to perform at the Super Bowl because they think being on TV is enough and I'm going to fight for their rights to actually be paid so that it's about promoting equity, that I'm going to work with the NFL to promote financial literacy among its players so players stop going broke. Mm -hmm. Like That's going to be part of my activism. If he had actually told a bigger story about why it was important for him as a successful businessman to come to the table to negotiate and to advocate, I think he would have got half the go back. You, you shook your head no. So tell me why. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I'm not necessarily thinking that you're wrong. I'm. I'm. You know, my my sort of feelings about it is that you know Jay Z kind of is existing. All, a lot of us we're existing in a really toxic kind of age when it comes to you know our politics. I mean, it's it's cancel culture. You know, so in some ways, I think that no matter what Jay Z said, you know, someone is going to be there to criticize him about it of course someone yeah exactly <laughs> so um my whole thing about jay is just giving him the ability to uh either prove him prove himself or prove us right or wrong you know i mean jay-z has put in the work to um, be in this position let's see what comes out you know that was the same thing i was saying about spike lee um when spike lee came out with the movie chirac 
before the movie even dropped, a lot of people were really critical about him. Should he be the one having this conversation about what's going on in Chicago? And my whole thing was that, you know, Spike Lee had put out an entire sort of catalog of work that shows us that he is engaged in, you know, these questions about what's going on in the African-American community. The least that we can do, you know, as consumers, as people on the outside, is to, to give him that chance. Um, now, whether or not Jay-Z would have gotten that blowback if he, you know, was a little bit more articulate about what he was doing, you know, I'm not sure. It's hard to say. I'm really skeptical about how Twitter responds to, you know, anything that anyone does. Um, so, But his blowback was because he called it Chirac, not because of the content of the film. Nobody had even seen the film. They just knew what he was calling it as an outsider using a name that had been popularized by Fox News. Um, not that Fox was the only one that used it, right. but that Fox popularized it. Um, I think it's part of the blowback. It's like this whole idea that context matters and how you approach a thing Absolutely. is just as important as the thing itself. Um, I agree with you. Like, I think the, the documentary he did on Katrina was, was excellent. Right. Um, I think that the overwhelming majority of his work and the work that, he was, that he's executive produced should... Um, give him a level of credibility but I think in this case when it's so funny the, 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 the most important thing about the film was the name not the actual film itself most people never even saw the film right um, kind of in the realm of uh, she hate me you know like lots of people right. had blowback about that and what he was I mean, but I think that maybe that's one of the roles that, that artists are playing right now is, is kind of provocateurs, even established artists, to be able to challenge what people assume that they're going to do. Well, I mean, information is coming at us so fast that people are unwilling to wait and see, you know, wait and see what it does, wait and see what the response is. I mean, I think um, that's a major part of it. How does that work for you publishing a journal that or, or edit, being the editor-in-chief of a journal that ideally comes out twice a year? Right. When news comes at us, like we're going to get 17 news stories by the time the show's over in our phones. How do you deal with cr trying to create work that's not necessarily evergreen, but still relevant um, by the time it finally comes out? Um, well, that's been the nature of scholarship, you know? I mean, even the work that I work on, the stuff that I do, I feel like in some ways it's, you know, 10 years too late, you know, especially when you're dealing with hip hop. Hip hop moves so fast. Um, I'm spending time talking about, you know, um, the themes of drugs and crack music in you know the mid 90s but you know we're talking about trap music and uh, on the on the radio now um, so I just think that the nature of scholarship is about being patient it's about you know things not necessarily coming out immediately um, how do I deal with it um, you know I just hope that the scholarship is strong um, you know, the writers putting in the work, doing the research so that when it does come out, it's thoughtful, it's rigorous, um, it's meaningful. Uh, it seems like one of the other things is also, I know you're working on launching a Medium page so that you can actually respond right. to things in, in closer to real time. I know you're, you're in talk with a couple of scholars about putting together symposiums that can be filmed right. um, and broadcast so that you're actually engaging in a different kind of scholarship exactly. maybe even would that be kind of primary source development so creating interviews narratives like this right. that can be shared that people can then reference so that it's not just about publishing other people's scholarship but actually potentially driving what it is that that more people are thinking about absolutely. in terms of scholarship yeah absolutely. What, what are the challenges in doing that in trying to particularly from this context of not having a major publisher behind you pushing it having a small nonprofit with modest means 
trying to help increase the impact factor of the publication, but then adding these other things to it? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, some of the challenges can be that, um, you know, writers, especially folks who are writing scholarship, they're not really getting paid for it, right. you know? So um, a lot of what they do is about sort of getting recognition for their intellectual work. Mm -hmm. um, and without having like these big publishers behind you, sometimes it could be difficult to get those really important scholars to jump on board. So what we've got to do is we've got to just show and prove when it's time to publish that work so that people can see that we're serious about our scholarship, we're serious about the hip hop community. I'm mean, encouraging folks to kind of jump on. Should part of this also be thinking about other kinds of publications? So whether that's, you know, I'm thinking about the hip hop readers that have been created, right. thinking about larger things than, than big air quotes, just a journal. So publishing a journal twice a year, hosting maybe one or two symposiums a year, doing, being able to do podcasts like this. Right. I know one of the things we talked about was publishing a lit review. So like picking a particular artist or even yeah. a particular scholar and reviewing their work right. to to put a, a magnifying glass on what it is that they've done and are doing. This is especially important for people that are not hip hop heads that are coming to this field, right. who are interested in how to bring hip hop into the classroom, whether that's a university classroom or K through 12 classroom, just thinking about what are all the tools that are necessary and the ways that we can be a resource. Right. And, and with that growing the staff in a way that makes that sustainable. So it's not like we went Really far, really far in one direction and then kind of gave up. I know we talked about, for example, um, creating videos, um, right. mini documentaries once a year. Right. So like all these things that will happen once and then you got to wait a whole year for it. Or a video comes and then a journal comes and then a reader comes and then, you know, so right. like how to do all that while you've got a full-time job or full -time multiple full-time jobs. Yeah. And, and a family. And a family. Yeah, I mean, I think that you were talking about the Medium page. That's one way that we can sort of get information out there as quickly as we can and not have to kind of go through the same process of, of publishing scholarship. You know, so for example, the Jay-Z NFL situation, uh, we can't wait a half a year, six months to maybe even a year to put something out on that. Although, you know, I'm quite sure that there are a lot of scholars working on that right now and are putting out or ready to put out some meaningful work. But, you know, the public is looking for something, looking for us to comment right now. So that Medium page is an opportunity to do that. Um, Little Brother just came out with a new album. You know, people want to know what we think about that. So in many ways, the Medium page is a way to kind of address issues in a timely manner. And the journal is an opportunity for us to have maybe more thoughtful consideration about some of these topics. Any future plans that we should know about that might be brand new, other than things we've already talked about? How are you planning to, to connect this work to the universities that you're at? Because you're at Maryland now. Right. You're at Georgetown. You're kind of all over the place. Yeah, yeah. In my classroom right now, um, I'm teaching a class on uh, the ways in which, you know, the African-American literary tradition has responded to crime. And we're looking at a series of, of uh, pieces of literature um, from Frederick Douglass's slave narrative. And my approach to that is that, you know, in many ways that's the initial sort of criminal act. <laughs> you know, a, a black man running away um, as a slave is breaking the law. Um, and what we do in that classroom is, is ask questions about, you know, what is um, justice? What is the law when the law isn't for you? Um, so we look at that novel. We're also looking at uh, Richard Wright's Native Son. 
Um, we're moving into uh, Perry Thomas's Down These Mean Streets, and we're going to end the semester with Dee Watkins, The Cook-Up. Um, so I, I bring a lot of the stuff that, I, that I'm interested in in terms of my scholarship. I bring it into the classroom. Um, I find, you know, that I, you know, am looking for folks who are publishing, you know, work like that to include in the journal. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm constantly engaged, you know, and I'm, and I'm talking about this with my kids, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's always on. Well, that's what's up. So, Dr. Dennis Winston, thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate you, man. Being a part of this podcast. Looking forward to seeing the amazing work you do over the course of the next year or so. Hopefully we'll be able to keep you beyond that. But if not, if let's, not. Make, let's make some amazingness. <laughs> Who knows, man? You could get picked up by one of these publishing houses we say and ain't paying attention to us. Who knows? Let's, let's wish nothing but good fortune for you. And hopefully, while you're here with us, we get some of that good fortune. Appreciate you. All right? No doubt.